We invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. You would expect us to consider the life of Matthew from the Gospel of Matthew because you perhaps would assume, if you have not read it, that Matthew talks about himself a great deal. In fact, he does not. In fact, he's very careful to not talk about himself. But because of the things that he stresses or deals with in his gospel, we can make some inferences, and we will make a couple of those in a moment. We will uh, begin uh, in Matthew chapter 1, but we will spend the majority of our time in Matthew chapter 9. If you want to find either or both of those two chapters, that will help us as we think about Matthew this morning. We are in the middle of a series. We're considering the 12 disciples. Today we come to the 8th of those 12. You might be curious about where we're going from here because I intend to finish before the end of August. Well, we're not going to consider the next three disciples uh, one at a time. We're going to consider all three of them next week. And then the following week, two weeks from, there we go, two weeks from today, uh, we will consider Judas. So, That's not going to be nice the rest of the day, so, Ken. And I trust that it will be helpful to all of us as we contemplate uh, the life of one who was not a believer and yet a disciple. But today, Matthew... I will tell you that Matthew is my favorite disciple. Uh, the reason for that is because he is the most unlikely of all the disciples, perhaps absent Judas, since he feigned being disciple and was not really. But nonetheless, uh, Matthew is the most unlikely for reasons I think that are obvious and will become, I trust, even more obvious. What do we know about Matthew? We know that he is uh, on the four lists of the 12 disciples found Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts, on those four lists, Matthew's name is either seventh or eighth. You'll recall we said from the beginning that those disciple lists are essentially the same. They are in groups of four. So there is a, if you will, an intimate group, Peter, Andrew, James, John. Uh, then there is a second group, and we have considered those, concluding today with Matthew. And then there is a fourth group, or, or pardon me, a third group of four uh, that we will consider three of them together next week. And the reason for that is because we know nothing more than their names. But that doesn't stop me from preaching. So it's going to be a miracle next week. Nonetheless, we know nothing more than their names. And then, of course, we know Judas. And uh, we know much about him. They, they comprise the four uh, that formed the last group. All right? So, as a result, we want to consider today Matthew. He is the author of the first book of the New Testament. That is really uh, beyond debate, though people who like to study the Bible love to debate about who wrote which book. But uh, Matthew is 
generally believed uh, by conservative people that he wrote the first gospel. He is, uh, he describes himself, uh, gives himself or uses the name Matthew. However, in Mark and Luke, when they uh, list his name, they don't call him Matthew, they call him Levi. Interesting, Luke writes the, the gospel of Luke and then he writes the book of Acts. In Luke, he calls him Levi, but in Acts, he calls him Matthew. We don't know why. All the folks who know the answer to that are now dead. They didn't leave us a note, so we don't know. Uh, but we do know that perhaps Levi is a surname, and uh, so his name is Matthew Levi. We know that he is a thoroughly Jewish man, as all of these disciples are, uh, for reasons that are become more obvious as we read his gospel. We know that he has a strong knowledge of the Old Testament. In a sense, his gospel is the most Jewish of all of the, the gospels and perhaps the most Jewish of any book in the New Testament with the possible exception of the book of Hebrews. Uh, by one count, there are 99 references or quotations of the Old Testament in the book of Matthew, 99. 99 times Matthew quotes the Old Testament. Now, that shows a number of things. One, a strong working knowledge of the Old Testament. And two, a strong affinity for the Old Testament. He actually not only knew the Bible, he loved the Bible. He believed the Bible and quotes the Bible as authority in his gospel. He, uh, that 99, by the way, is more than Mark, Luke, and John combined. You take the Old Testament quotations in each of those remaining three Gospels and add them together, they don't add up to more than Matthew's use of the Old Testament. We know that he is aware of Jesus. We know, as we're going to uh, see in a moment, that uh, his, his work environment is the city of Capernaum. Capernaum is the town that Jesus leaves Nazareth for and makes, if you will, his home and his base of operations as he begins his ministry. He is not unfamiliar with the ministry of Jesus. And uh, so when Jesus calls him as a disciple, the scripture says he immediately leaves his work or his table and he follows Jesus. That uh, is not altogether shocking for someone who has heard much uh, of the stories of Jesus. Uh, as regards his gospel, uh, this is, as I mentioned, the, the most Jewish of all the gospels. Let me give you one illustration in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, this will become, I hope, very obvious as you consider this fact. If you'll note in Matthew 1, 1, Matthew begins with a genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I want to stop there a moment. I just want to read another verse here in a minute, but let me stop there. You might ask, well, why do we need a genealogy? Because Matthew, being a Jew, knows that the only way a person can be the Messiah is if he has ancestral credentials. He must be the son of Abraham. He must. He must be the son of David. 
If he is not, he cannot be Messiah. So for the ancient Jewish culture and for our purposes today, we are comforted knowing that Jesus checks every box. And how do we know that? Because the Jews kept ancestral records ad nauseum for the purposes of validating land or possessions or credentials or in the case of the Levitical tribe specifically, in, in the case of their access to the temple and so forth. The Jews were big on ancestry because ancestry unlocks doors or validates claims or proves legitimacy. So what does Matthew do? From the jump in Matthew 1, he begins a genealogy. Read it again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was and now begins a historical recitation of the ancestral connections of Jesus, concluding, of course, with verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So we know that Matthew is a Jewish author writing a gospel with a heavily Jewish flavor. Luke, on the contrary, is a Gentile. Luke is not a Jew. He writes a gospel, therefore, that is far more interested in showing the, if you will, the validity of Christ as his application for Gentiles. I would dare say all, if, or mostly all of us, uh, are Gentiles. We have no Jewish credentials, no, no Jewish bloodlines. Uh, as a result, we would be uh, eager to read Luke's gospel to see that Jesus is indeed the Messiah for all nations. Matthew doesn't ignore that fact. After all, Matthew includes the Great Commission, go into all the world. I'm not suggesting that Matthew ignores that fact, but he doesn't emphasize that fact to the degree that Luke does. Let me give you an illustration. We don't have to turn there. But Luke also includes a genealogy. There are only two genealogies of Christ in the Bible. One is in Matthew 1. The other is in Luke 3. Interesting about Luke's gospel, he doesn't go back to Abraham. Why would Matthew go back to Abraham? Because he's Jewish and he's trying to show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But Luke is a Gentile. His genealogy doesn't go back to Abraham. It goes farther. It goes back to Adam. Adam. In fact, Jesus is the Savior of the entire world. And we know that because the Bible tells us that. And it tells us that explicitly and implicitly. And even something as dry and dusty as a genealogy can prove that. So Matthew writes a gospel for the Jews, and even his genealogy reflects that. So that brings us to the last thing we know about Matthew, which is perhaps the thing that most of us know about him, and that is that he was a tax collector. Now, tax folks are uh, generally not loved. Can we agree on that? Uh, the reason for that, of course, is we don't like giving away our money. Um, it has nothing to do with the tax collector specifically. 
uh, in our current culture. People work for uh, the revenue department. They are not bad people. They are not evil people. They are not unrighteous people. Uh, they just have to do a job that we wish they didn't do, that nobody did. We wish that we could keep all of our money and spend it any way we want. But in fact, tax collectors are not generally loved. And by the way, people who are tax collectors know that's the way it is. They know that when they take the job. That being said, that is not a fair picture of a New Testament tax collector. Because a New Testament tax collector is not working for the Jews. He's working for the Romans. You say, well, why does that matter? Well, let's assume for the sake of conversation that a foreign government conquered this nation and they moved in and they garrisoned soldiers in our town. There's a, uh, if you will, an army post of soldiers who are not Americans controlling what's going on in our town. And as a result of that, they set up tax booths, and we have to pay taxes to this foreign army, to this foreign government, whatever it may be. You can pick your bad government, your despot government, your own imagination. And you would go to pay your taxes, and you go in there, and who do you find working the tax booth? Americans. Now, virtually all of us would say, how can you, as an American, work for this conquering army who's come into America to overrun our country and to take our money from us? How can you justify that you're working for these people? The answer is you can't in our minds. And on top of that, there's a second reason why they are universally unloved, tax collectors, and that is because they are given a minimum that they are required. Uh, history tells us that tax collectors were generally evil men in, involved with foreign governments, and they were all scoundrels. So let's assume for the sake of argument that the government requires a $1 tax, a $1 tax. But you as a tax collector are permitted to extort money above that and keep it for yourself. So if you can get a dollar and a dime or a dollar and a quarter, that's good business for you. And it's completely legal according to the foreign government that's allowing you to have this franchise. So you're not only working for the foreign government, you're stealing on top of that some sort of an excise tax for your own pockets above that. Matthew Levi is one of those guys. Make no mistake, he is the least likely candidate to be considered a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he is. Now, his particular tax ministry is located in Capernaum. There are two kinds of taxes. Uh, one would be the kind of tax that we would be most familiar with, if you will, sort of an excise tax. The fact that you live in the country means you have to pay certain tax. That kind of taxation is one thing. 
Matthew is probably, the Bible doesn't say specifically, but we know these kinds of texts, booths existed. He probably was one of these because of his location in Capernaum. He, he, he probably worked a tariff tax. Capernaum is a, 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 if you will, a port, a town on the Sea of Galilee, and, and travel would occur across the Sea of Galilee, and they would have to come through his tariff booth. So he's collecting tariffs on, on travel and goods that cross the Sea of Galilee. There's also a, a, a prominent trade route that, that comes from the north into Syria, down into Egypt, and it goes along the shore, the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is located on the highway, and folks that are traveling must pay what amounts to being a travel tax, and they would have had to pay that tax to Matthew. So, you, you would understand then that tax collectors are generally bad people doing evil things. They're taking money from their own people, and they are stealing. Now, there are three tax collector stories in the New Testament. One is Matthew's. The other is, in Luke 18, there is a publican. King James uses the word publican for a tax collector. Same thing, just different word. There is a publican who goes up to pray with, if you will, at the same time as a Pharisee. Jesus tells a story in Luke 18. Two men went up to pray. One, a Pharisee, who raised his head to God and said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that publican, that tax collector. And the other, the tax collector, stood afar off. Why did he stand afar off? Because he was not permitted to stand close. Society did not permit tax collectors to come near to God. They didn't come near the temple. They were ostracized. They were considered unclean. Uh, in fact, Matthew associates as far as a social class, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew associates tax collectors at a social level with prostitutes. So Luke 18, there is a second tax collector story told. And then in Luke 19, there is a third, perhaps the second most tax collector we've all heard of is this fellow named Zacchaeus. Now what's interesting about Zacchaeus, of course, is he's identified as a chief tax collector. He's high brass among tax collectors. I mean, he's got tax collectors working for him. People like Matthew work for people like Zacchaeus. The Scripture says that Zacchaeus, of course, is, is born again and, and comes to faith, and he professes faith in such a way that he returns money. He, he, he knows that he's a, a scoundrel. He knows that he has stolen from people. And he said, if I have wronged people, I will, I will give them back. I will restore for them fourfold. He, he, he has a genuine conversion in Luke 19, profoundly so. So this is who Matthew is. He is a tax collector working in a seaport town, and he knows of Jesus because Jesus has moved his home base there. And stories from across the lake and in and around Galilee would have been very, very well known to Matthew. So in spite of the fact that he is a tax collector, if you will, working for a foreign government, he is a student of the Bible. He knows the Bible. He knows there is a Messiah promised. And he is not at least 
disinterested. He is, he, is, he is very interested, so much so that as we read his story now in Matthew chapter 9, we can relate to him somewhat. I'll just point out in verse 1, Matthew chapter 9, that Jesus gets into a boat, he crosses over and comes to his own city. So we know the context of Matthew chapter 9 is Capernaum, Jesus' own city. Jump down to verse 9. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. He quotes here from Hosea 6, which we will consider momentarily. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So let us think for a moment about at least two lessons we can learn from Matthew. And, and I must tell you, because Matthew has written a 28-chapter gospel, there's no end to lessons that we could apply. But in the interest of time, I've simply chosen two. There's much to say about this man, and I would suggest to you that if you were going to study uh, one of the disciples, you, you, wouldn't, you would serve yourself well if Matthew became a focus of your study. What do we know about this story here, Matthew 9, 9, following. The Scripture says that Matthew is working. He's sitting at his tax booth, and Jesus passes by and tells him to follow me. Now, this seems like, if you will, a cryptic conversation. Jesus sort of walking by, stops, sort of looks at him boldly or intently and says, follow me. Jesus walks on, and Matthew says, yeah, okay, he goes. I mean, the, the Bible doesn't give us, the, if you will, the fullness of these experiences. So we have to assume certain things. We have to assume, perhaps, that Matthew knew who Jesus was. He recognized him. He, he, he knew his face or his countenance. He, he had seen him because he works and lives in Capernaum, Jesus' hometown now. Uh, we have to assume that he is aware of Jesus' teaching. He's, he, we have to assume that he has heard either Jesus in person or he's heard others who have heard Jesus in person come and tell him about Jesus' teaching. We have to assume he has heard of Jesus' miracles, the, the story of Jesus walking on the water, the story of Jesus' uh, healing uh, a demoniac or, or perhaps some other sickness, the epileptic child, and so forth. He raised people from sickness or death. He's heard these stories. We have to assume that Matthew has heard these stories. Having said all of that, we don't know specifically, but we know that in the fullness of time, Jesus crossed paths with Matthew and that he invites him to follow him. There is another thing that we would 
note about Matthew is that he's probably the most educated of all the disciples. He is, uh, he's a tax man, so he's an accountant. He's a bean counter. He, he's, a, he's a man who pays attention to numbers, keeps a ledger, knows who's who and who's not. He, he, he's a man who's got some education. He, he's been trained. He, he's not only educated in the Scriptures, but he's educated in numbers, math, if you will, counting, adding, keeping track of such things. He's a, he's a businessman. He's responsible for giving an account of himself to Roman authorities and so forth. So he's a, probably a man with some measure of, of articulation. He probably can speak well or speak well enough or speak in such a way as he doesn't sound like maybe Peter or Andrew or James or John, who are, who are people who don't have trained uh, voices or so forth. We, we just don't know a lot about Matthew, but we can assume quite a bit because he is a tax collector working for the government. As a result of that, it is strange, is it not, when we read this story, that Jesus just simply says to him, follow me. But don't assume that all of this is occurring in a vacuum. It's not like Jesus has never met Matthew or that Matthew's never met Jesus or that Matthew's never heard of Jesus. It's not like that this is not happening, if you will, off our radar. Matthew himself is telling this story, and he does not want to call attention to himself. So he gives us a very cryptic record, but it's enough. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew at the tax booth, and he said, follow me. So he rose and he followed him. That's the story. That's the story as Matthew tells it. Luke, by the way, tells the same story, and he adds just a handful of more words. Virtually no new news. We are not focusing, the Bible is not focusing on these men. Rather, the Bible is focusing on the one who is calling them and does so beautifully. So, notice in the very next paragraph, verse 10, Jesus reclines at table in the house. So, there's a meal in the house. Matthew doesn't tell us the house. However, Mark and Luke tell us this is Matthew's house. So Matthew has a party and he invites his friends. Now tax collectors, they're Jewish, but they work for the Romans, and they're a social class of outcasts. Nobody wants to be around them. Nobody has anything to do with them. So they have a limited number of friends. So if you're a guy with no social connections whatsoever, except a handful of other folks just like you, and you're going to have a party and invite people to come and meet Jesus, this one you've decided to leave your business for and follow, who are you going to invite to your party? People just like you. The problem, of course, with that is these are people that are generally hated, and particularly so by the religious crowd. There is a mixture of nationalistic pride and religion. That's not an unusual mixture, by the way. It happens even today. Jesus reclines at the table in the house. Many tax collectors and sinners came, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. The Pharisees saw this. They said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you doing this? Why is he doing this? Because their culture, their, if you will, their tradition based on Old Testament scriptures that are not explicit, but they embellished in certain way. We do this all the time. 
give you an illustration. The book of Proverbs says, bad company corrupts good morals. If I were to ask for a show of hands, and I am not, many of you could say, well, I remember when my parents might have quoted that verse. Or somebody in my history might have quoted that proverb and said, you should stop hanging out with those bad people. And so we've been trained, rightly, I think, that bad company corrupts good morals. That you are who you run with. If you run with dogs, you're going to get fleas, etc., 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 etc. You get the picture. So the Pharisees had the notion that you couldn't run with these people because these people were not our people. These people were not even God's people. These people were doing business with the devil, known as the Roman government. And they were liars and cheats, and they were evil men, and they want, we want nothing to do with them. And they are socially, culturally, and religiously outcasts from us. And so the Pharisees hated tax collectors and made sure that everybody around them knew that the application of the Old Testament for their current context was, don't go near those people. Those are not our people. And the people who hang out with those people are wrong, and they are breaking the law. So again, read this paragraph. Jesus reclines at table in the house. Whose house? A tax collector's house. And who's also at the table with him? More tax collectors. What does that say about Jesus? He's a bad man. He's a bad man. Because he is eating with bad men. So we get a picture of Matthew's circumstance. Interesting, isn't it, that as Matthew details his own call in Matthew 9, 9, the very next paragraph includes this story of the first experience that he encounters with Pharisees after he has begun to follow Jesus. <coughs> this made quite an impression on Matthew. But you'll note Jesus response. Verse 12, when he heard it, Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. Quoting Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So I want to make two applications, I think, that are valid today as regards Matthew in light of this. And in order to do so, we have to turn to Hosea. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Hosea 6 quickly. Hosea 6. Hosea, of course, is the prophet, and he is he's speaking for God. And he is recording here a bit of a back and forth dialogue between the people and on the one hand, and God on the other. So in verse 1, the people are speaking. Hebrews, or rather, Hosea 6, 1, the people are speaking. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down. He will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So the first three verses of Hosea 6 
seemed to be the witness of the people of God, in this case Israel and Judah in the Old Testament, who are repentant and who are turning to God. However, the response of God implies otherwise. Notice verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? A reference to Israel. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud. The word here translated love in verse 4 is the Hebrew word hesed. Depending on your translation, that is translated steadfast love, loving kindness, loyal love, covenant love. It is the word for mercy, genuine mercy, a loving mercy, a forgiving mercy. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. So get the, get the picture here. Your love is like the morning dew. How long does the morning dew stay? Well, this time of year doesn't stay at all. Right? You wake up and it's 79 degrees at 6 a.m. The dew's gone. He says, your love lasts about as long as the morning dew. You talk it, but you're not living it. Therefore, verse 5, you know my response to you? My response is to send them prophets like Hosea. Therefore, I have hewn them. Hewn, hewn. That's, that's a verb that means I have cut them. It's, it's the word used for quarrying stones. What do you do in a quarry? You cut rock. You cut it. You break it. So I've hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For, and here's that verse, Hosea 6, 6, For I desire hesed, mercy, steadfast love, loyal love, covenant love, faithful love, loving kindness. I desire hesed, mercy, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. So there's that verse in the Old Testament. Matthew records Jesus using that verse in response to the Pharisees at the dinner party that he throws for Jesus for his friends in Matthew chapter 9. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So it seems to me that one of the applications we can make today is to apply Hosea 6, 6 for our own lives. Matthew understands that God is a God of great mercy, even for great sinners. He is a God of great mercy, even for great sinners. I've been a Christian since I was a boy. Many of you have similar testimonies. I've been trained about what's right, what's acceptable in Christian culture. Christian people don't do that. Christian people do this and this and this. Many of you have the same testimony. It's not a problem, by the way. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. But I will tell you, that in spite of the fact that we were trained, we assumed. We assumed. We weren't trained this way unless we were, and if we were, we were trained wrongly. 
But if you assume this, you assumed it wrongly. You assume that if you've got to be such a sinner, particularly bad sinner, or particularly repetitive sinner, or a long-lasting sinner, if you were a sinner like that for a decade, if you're a sinner like that for two decades, if you're a sinner like that, uh, not just in your youthful adolescence when you were immature, maybe your college years, you sowed some wild oats, but here you are and you're, you're 28, now you're 38 maybe, maybe you're even 48, and you're still a bad person according to the measuring stick of culture. Matthew understood that God was a God of great mercy, even for great sinners. How old do you think Matthew is? Well, it's fair to assume that the disciples are fairly young men. They're, they're, they're not 50-year-olds. They're, they're, they're probably in their 20s, probably. But Matthew might be the exception. He's a tax collector. He's got a business with the government. They've entrusted a lot of money to him, a lot of responsibility to him. Matthew may have been the oldest of all the disciples. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us doesn't, it's because it's immaterial. But for the purpose of this, we, we need to think about the fact, what if, what if this man is 32, 35, 37 years old? Jesus is 30. The Bible tells us he was 30 when he began his ministry. Uh, so his disciples would have been, you know, less or more than perhaps his own age. And so here's this man, Matthew. He's, he's, he's been a sinner for quite a while. He's got at least 10 years, 15 years, maybe 20 years of sinning as an adult. He's not 70 years old, but he's not 15, and he's certainly not 20. He's a tax collector, and he understands that God is a God of great mercy, even for great sinners. What, what do we learn from Matthew? That God will save even me. God will save me. Maybe you're here today, and, and you think that somehow you have poisoned the relationship you have with God or could have had or might have had with God or that you know someone who believes that they have somehow poisoned the potential relationship they might have had with God because they, like Matthew, are a great sinner. We have good news for you this morning. God is a God who loves great sinners. How do we know that? Because he comes to dinner parties with great sinners. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus manages to maintain personal purity while being in an orbit, or if you will, a relationship with people who are great sinners. He is not a sinner. He is not acceding to their sin. He is not agreeing with their sin. He is, if you will, standing against their sin. But he is not doing that at the cost of this relationship. He's having dinner with sinners for the purpose of expressing love. Understand this, I desire mercy. I desire you to love sinners. Luke 19 makes it clear, Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. Matthew 9 makes it clear, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for the purpose of interacting with sinners. Where would you expect to find a physician? 
You'd find, you would expect to find a physician among the sick. Where would you expect to find the Savior? Where, let me say it differently. Where would you expect to find the Savior's people? Where would you expect to see the disciples? Many of us were raised to suggest that because we're disciples, we're to ignore those or stay away from or to judge those who are not like us. I'm going to tell you, friend, there are people today that don't know Christ. And the only way they're going to know Christ is if the people who already know Christ love them. This is a challenge in every way. There's a second thing. Matthew learned that no one was well, quote unquote, well. That's the word Jesus used. Verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Matthew learned that no one was well without Jesus. They're just a different kind of sick. A different kind of sick. Susan and I just got back yesterday from a six-day trip with our two oldest grandchildren. We have a 12-year-old grandson, 11-year-old granddaughter. We took them to Texas. And uh, we rode up and down the I-35 corridor, Dallas to San Antonio and back. So we've been on the road. We're a little road-weary this week. We've had a great time. We went to SeaWorld. We, we went to Austin, talked about football. We saw, we, we, we even went to Magnolia and Waco. My 11-year-old granddaughter. I, by the way, I've been there three times now, four times. I ain't going back. <laughs> they keep spending lots of money. It's, it, if you had not been in a couple years, you need to go back just so you can see the kind of money that, that the enterprise is making. Capitalism is alive and well in Waco, I promise you. So we've been in a lot of public places this week. Do you know how many people we saw at SeaWorld? Lots. You know how many strange people we saw at SeaWorld? Lots. We went to Austin. The, the, the town motto for Austin is keep Austin weird. You think I'm lying. No, I'm not. That's the town motto. Here it is. You belong, Austin. Keep Austin weird. And it's weird. It's always been weird. I remember when my dad went to school there, he told stories about how weird it was. Weird. It's weird. So we went to Austin, drove through going south, drove through going north. We saw a bunch of folks that meet the criteria. But let me repeat the point. Matthew learned that no one was well, to use Jesus' word without Jesus. They're just a different kind of sick. You know, maybe you like to hang out with sick people who look like you, dress like you, mow their grass like you, wash their car like you, wear clothes like you, 
eat at the restaurants that you like to eat at. Vote like you like to vote. Maybe that's the sick people you like to hang out with. I'll admit, it's, I'm a little more culturally comfortable with people who are exactly like me. We could make all kinds of silly one-line jokes about different kinds of behavior, but that's not the point. But the question that begs asking is, for what reason did Jesus call Matthew his disciple? I hope, I hope you'll stay with me here. We have considered seven, now the eighth disciple. You can make the case, depending on how you interpret John 21, when Peter says, after the resurrection, I'm going fishing, and seven disciples go fishing with Peter, Peter being the seventh. The seven that leave, the seven that go fishing, are the seven we've already considered. Seven guys who are friendly with fishing. Now, we know several of them are, are, are commercial fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, John. We, we know they are. And perhaps the others are too. We just don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But they're certainly friendly with fishermen. But those seven go. Now we come to the eighth disciple, this man, Matthew. I would ask you, what similarity does a tax collector businessman have with a commercial fisherman? The answer is nothing. What does this man have in common with those men? Nothing. Those men are fishermen. They're paying tariffs to this guy who's cheating them out of their money. Interesting, isn't it? That Jesus calls to be his disciples people who are not like the rest of the people and calls some to be his disciples who are like a small niche of people. But all of them are his disciples, and all of them are obligated to follow Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want you to go out, and I want you to be true to God. I want you to have the heart of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the hospitality of God, the faithfulness of God. I don't want you to be like the morning dew that dries out by 7 a.m. I want you to be faithful all day long. I'm not looking for sacrifice. What does that mean? Sacrifice means I, I commit sin, so then I have to go and I have to have some sacrifice to pay for my sin. I'm not looking for you to make mistakes. I'm looking for you to be faithful so that you don't need sacrifice. Which would you rather have, a person who doesn't need sacrifice or a person who does? Well, obviously, you'd rather have a person who's faithful and doesn't need to come back again and again and again and say, I'm sorry, 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 I'm sorry. But that's the religious culture of the New Testament. The Pharisees are all about rituals and washings and going through rules and so forth to make yourself clean because we all know you're unclean. And they're focusing on the sacrifice, the sacrifice, the sacrifice, the sacrifice. And Jesus said, you, you missed the whole point, haven't you? Would you rather have somebody who's constantly failing? Or would you have, have, rather have someone who's constantly faithful? Well, you're all sick. You're just a different kind of sick. 
And the difference between the publican in Luke 18 who goes up to pray and the Pharisee in Luke 18 who goes up to pray is that one justifies himself and says, I don't need forgiveness. I don't need mercy. I don't need to change. I don't need to be different. I'm okay. And one hangs his head in shame and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me. Matthew understands that no one was well without Jesus. And the only answer for his friends who were tax collectors was Jesus. I would ask you, do you think that Jesus is the answer? I can't imagine you saying no to that question. You're going to say yes to that question, of course. So if Jesus is the answer, who are you telling? You say, well, I'm telling my people. Okay, your people need to hear it. Tell your people. Tell your people. It doesn't matter if they got a good job. It doesn't matter if they can swing a bat or kick a ball. It doesn't matter if they make fine grades. It doesn't matter if they look good on Sundays. It doesn't matter if their yard is manicured or their car is washed or their clothes are ironed. It doesn't matter that they meet some sort of external criteria that you or I might come up with this morning. What matters is, are they born again? Are they regenerate? If they are unregenerate, they are damned. They will die with their money. They will die with their prestige. They will die with their reputation. They will die with their celebrity. They will die with their cultural acceptance. But they will die, and they will go to hell because they don't have Jesus. So there's all kinds of ways, circumstantially, to measure how one is sick. But in the end, does it matter if you die of diabetes or cancer or heart disease? Does it matter if you die of some stroke? Does it matter how you die if in the end we all die? We are going to die. And on that day, the criteria, the taxonomy that Christ is going to measure our righteousness by, includes Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Were you faithful? Are you faithful in extending mercy even as I? Matthew learned no one was well without Christ. They're just a different kind of sick. When I think about the witness of this church and every church who names the name of Christ, God doesn't want us to retreat in our walls and just invite people who are like us. God wants us to go and tell. He wants us to go and tell everyone. We, we need to interact. We need to have communion with people who are not like us because they too are sick. They're just a different sick. So don't be intimidated. Don't be arrogant. Don't be prejudiced. Don't be judgmental about external things. The applications for this are so so endless. I trust that today you'll consider Matthew's story and realize that in a sense 
Matthew is the ugly duckling amongst the disciples. He's a man who chose to do business with the Romans and steal from his own people. And yet, Christ made him one of the twelve. Which means there's room for you, friend, and people who are not like you, friend. Jesus desires mercy. Let us go and extend mercy in the name of Jesus everywhere we go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your tender mercies to us. We are not well until you make us well. And when you make us well, you intend for us to be different, to live differently, and to share the love of God differently. Help us not to get caught up in the ways of the world, the teachings of the world, the teachings of the culture. Help us to rise above, to live as people who are the followers of God. And yet, do not let us, Father, insulate ourselves from the world. We are to be in it, not of it. But, Lord, you've called us to be in it. Let us be your people to a sin-sick world. Thank you for Matthew, for his example, for his understanding of this great truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.